we got to get ready for our scripture and for our teaching today. I, I can say buckle up. Um, it's a pretty meaty scripture, but right now would you stand and we're going to read this together. James 2, 14 through 26. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or daily food. If one of you says, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not occupied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you will have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith without my deeds." You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a friend is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was it not even Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. May God bless this word today in our ears. You may be seated. Thanks, Demi. Hello, friends. Uh, Wow, what a scripture. We're going to get into that here in a second. We're now sermon series in James, Wisdom from Above, wisdom that is somehow higher than ours, somehow higher than our, our human understanding. Um, it's a, it's a full-on passage. It's one where I was thinking about it, we were praying about it before service, that um, if we are not challenged by it today, then I think one of probably a couple of things has happened. The first one would be that I have inexpertly and badly tried to get our heads around the word of God, that is highly likely, or it could be that our hearts are hard, because this is a hard passage, friends, we're going to dig right into it today. Um, I just want to say, you know, I love being part of this Jesus community, and it's just God's way of engineering things that today we're talking about safe families and all the wonderful things that are going on at this church. Yesterday, me and Forrest and a bunch of mates We're down at a surf contest down at Tamarack, loving on our community. There was a Sangeeta walk where they were raising funds for the the, uh, orphanage in India. You guys are doing it, okay? So if you're left in any doubt, uh, be of good cheer. God is working in our midst, and I love being part of this church. I truly do. Me and my wife and our kiddos are much blessed. And if you're one of those people who wants to know where we're going to go, you know, you're that person who reads the, the um, you know, contents page of a book before you read it. I know who you are, both of you out there. I know who you are. Um, here's where we're going to go today. Today in this passage, we're going to see that James brings up some home truths 
He does it by way, actually, of rhetorical questions. They're not easy questions. And then he uh, moves into a, a place where it's a gritty example, where he uses, again, the issue of finances and wealth. I mean, how rude. Didn't this guy get the memo? We're in church. We shouldn't talk about money. What's with this guy? Then he moves into a theological argument or theological reasoning or a substructure for his main point. And then biblical examples that do the same thing. And lastly, he comes down and lands at the conclusion, which just as last week we had a memory verse, and can someone help me out here, Ryan's memory verse from his unbelievably great sermon. Watch it. It's unbelievable. Can anyone help me? What was last week's memory verse? Mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Yes. Today's memory verse is going to be our final landing point. Just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. That's our memory verse for this coming week. And today we're going to sail very, very close to the rocks of legalistic righteousness, which is a grave, grave peril. So we need to chart the waters wisely. We're going to need God's help. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it gives us life. Thank you that you don't leave us to our own devices. You don't leave us uh, on our own to figure things out. You give us the Jesus community around us. You give us your word. You infuse it with life through the power of your Holy Spirit. And I ask that you do that today. My prayer, Lord, is that you would um, reduce me to vanishing point. Amplify your voice. We've come to hear from you and to hear from your word. Not the the words of man, but the, the thoughts of God himself. We, we come before you. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Is it just me? Or have you noticed how sometimes non-Christians seem to have a better grasp of Christian concepts than us Christians do? There's this guy called Mohandas Karamchand Gandhi. You might know him by a different name. And, uh, and he said this, this thing. He, he said, um, happiness is when what you think and what you say and what you do are in harmony. Think about that. I've got this chiropractor. He's a real new age guy, lovely guy, quite brilliant guy. And, uh, you know, like in his foyer of his place where you go and sit, there's the, the butterflies and the unicorns and the pastel things and the smelly, you know, that thing that pumps out the smell, you know, and, and the music is like the, I don't know if it's a whale singing or whale farting, but you know what I mean? You know that thing? And uh, anyway, we were there and he's just about to crick-crack my back and everything and and he was talking about alignment, blah, blah, blah. And I wasn't really paying attention because let's face it, who understands it anyway? And I'm just there and, and then this thing came out of my mouth, you know, when you don't think and it just comes out and I said, yeah, it's just like spiritual stuff, isn't it? And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, when things are out of alignment, when there's a dissonance, between what we think we think, but actually what we do we do, when there's a dissonance, it can lead to pain for ourselves and for others. That's where we're going to go today. As the passage begins, James here, again, remember it's at least 15 times in this letter, I haven't gone through and counted, but it's at least a dozen times. He says, my brothers and sisters, my dear ones, you special, dear, beloved ones, the church was scattered, as we've been hearing the last few weeks, out through, for them, the known world, 
I'm writing to you. I'm writing to you with gritty truth. It's wisdom from above. It's not your wisdom. It's going to be challenging to you, but it's all coming from an ultimately a very loving place. And he begins with his first rhetorical question, what good is it? Someone claims to have faith but has no deeds. Now, the, the Bible wasn't written in English. This part of it was written in a, a form of Greek and it strongly implies in the language this is a rhetorical question or that at the very least in brackets straight after that, what good is it? None whatsoever. Literally, none. Literally, that faith is going to be dead. I've called today's sermon zombie faith, right? Because we've got, you know, Halloween coming up. But also, it's like, it looks alive. It's walking around. It's, you know, saying kumbaya, but actually it's dead. Zombie faith. This faith is worth absolutely nothing whatsoever. If someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such a faith save them? Second rhetorical question, answer in brackets... No way. No way. Whoa, some of you guys, the hair on the back of your necks going up, because this sounds a little bit like it could be a works-based righteousness about what we do. If you're feeling like that, you are not alone. There was this guy I've talked about him before called Martin Luther, a great reformer. In fact, could I have up on the screen, there should be a... Um, a picture of like a super old looking Bible. In fact, it is literally an old Bible, okay? So in his 1522 translation of the New Testament, uh, which was later compiled into this big one here, and they put all the naked women and the weird angels and stuff in it as well. Um, but this one, uh, or in the original one in 1522, he actually ex-iced it. He, he took James out of the New Testament and put it in an appendix because of this passage today chiefly. He said, you know, it's not actually the Bible, it's a, an epistle of story. He believed it was still a holy book, but like a two-tiered system. It's not like the, the works of stone and the works of wood that we can rely on. This is like a, a sort of frivolous, silly thing, because he believed it undermined this concept of grace. And we're going to come to that. Grace, if you don't know what it is, is the free and unmerited gift of God that, that we get. We receive God's mercy and God's grace. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. Grace is getting that which we don't deserve. We get God's mercy. And if you have been dragged here by a friend and you don't know the whole Jesus thing and it's all new, this little 30 seconds now is for you. And just ignore literally everything else I say. This part is for you right now. God's grace is amazing. God's grace is overwhelming. There is nothing you have done. There is nothing you could ever do to earn God's love, to earn God's mercy, to earn God's grace. He doesn't give us what we do deserve. He doesn't give us punishment. He doesn't repay us as our sins deserve. He doesn't pay us according to our iniquities. He does not give us that. It's not just mercy. It's also grace. He gives us freedom. He gives us love. He gives us Jesus community. He gives us his Holy Spirit. We get grace. Friends, don't forget that. For whatever I'm about to say next, that is a corrective for the people of God. Don't forget that. For the rest of us, we think, well, number one, why is there a tension? Can I have the, there should be a slide up there with a thing that says, um, I think it says meaning and application. Here we go. Right. 
So when we come to the Bible, and, and sorry, this is going to be like 30 seconds of systematic theology, and then you know you, we're going to get on with it. But when we come to the Bible, don't just read the Bible and immediately apply it to yourself. That is a very, very inexpert use of this amazing tool that God has given us for our edification. It'd be like getting a wrench and trying to bang in one of those little nails into the wall that you hang a picture on. Like a gigantic wrench. You could, you know, it's just, it's not really what it was made for. Whenever we come to the Word of God, we need to first ascertain the meaning of what it's saying. And secondly, we need to apply it correctly. If you miss one of these elements, and they're not necessarily sequential, but you are going to land yourself in hot water. And history is full of people who, forgetting one of these wrong, have ended up in heresy or ended up in injury or ended up just with stupid thinking. Firstly, what do the words say? Like actually work it out, read through it, nut through it, dig through it. We need to understand that. Secondly, what is the context? Because the text without the context is a con. Like what, what is the context of it? The historical context, the literary context. What is it showing us? What is it teaching? Is it a historical book? Is it a prophetic book? You, you know what I'm talking about. So sorry, I'm going over old ground for some of us here. Then what does the whole text say? What does the whole Bible have to say about this issue? Because if you just read one verse out of context and, and have it as the filter that you pour the rest of the Bible through, you're going to do a disservice to the whole. So once we've ascertained meaning, okay, then how do we apply it? Because we're in the iPhone generation, the generation, as my mate pointed out this week, that it's the only generation that ever would have worked to have those little personal cameras that you put on the front of your bicycle or your surfboard. Because, you know, before the, you know, this generation, we weren't really that important enough, but now we're the literal center of the universe, okay? <laughs> right? Don't just read it and then apply it. And it's not about you. Sorry to be the one to tell you, but actually you are not the center of the universe. God is. He's amazing. We'll talk, talk about him in a minute. All right? Read it and then apply it to them. And I'm going off the work of Jacqueline Gray, an amazing theologian, the Old Testament, a book by the same name, them, us, and me, applied to those who are first hearing it. Here it was the home churches scattered throughout the, the known world, like I said, having it read out to them. What did they understand by it? What was the meaning to them? Secondly, what is the meaning to us as the people of God? Lastly, what does it mean to me? Okay, end of the boring lecture part. Why do I talk about that? Well, I talk about that because there is a real tension. Here in verse um, 14, then in verse 17, and then, and then the last verse, verse 26, it talks about a different kind of faith than we are used to hearing about. I've got a sneaking suspicion that actually God was not having schizophrenia, nor is there a conflict between Paul, who talks about grace a lot, and James, who talks about real faith a lot. I actually believe, and sorry Martin Luther, but I believe that these things are complementary. There's this verse where um, Paul is exhorting his people to understand, to wrap your head around grace. There's actually lots of it throughout throughout the writings of Paul. He's a guy, if you don't know, who wrote uh, quite a lot of the New Testament. After Luke, he wrote the second most words in the, in the New Testament, right? And there's this, uh, there's this verse in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It's kind of held up as one of the great pithy kind of scriptures about grace. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. 
We cannot boast. No matter how awesome you are, awesomeme.com, it does not matter, all right? You are still going to fall short of God's glory. For the perfect one or two of us out there, you can go and get a latte, right? Next, what's capping is not going to apply to you. We are all, I believe, jokes aside, we are all standing under a waterfall of God's grace. If we want to do it by law, as Mark told us a couple of weeks ago, if you want to seek righteousness according to the law, you cannot stumble at even one point. Even one thought, one lie, one terrible thing is enough to make us not be able to stand before this wonderful Lord of all. It is all grace. We cannot boast. The only thing that we bring to the transaction is our dreadfulness, our woefulness, our hopelessness, our sin. It's all grace. I'd like to point out, though, that the Bible doesn't stop after Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Not Ephesians 2, 9, blah, 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 full stop, eternity. Literally, literally the very next verse says, For you were created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for you to do. It it talks about it, it being a past tense thing when it's talking about grace. You have been bestowed with grace. For what? To do these good works before time began, before time was even time. He thought of you, I mean literally, friend, you and your life and the things that he is calling you to do, the marvelous things. They're going to be challenging things. They're going to be amazing things. They're going to stretch you. But they're going to, he has created them for you to do. You always, another translation of that um, would be work of art. You are God's work of art being painted in. You're not quite completed yet. I don't think there's a conflict between Paul and between James, between understanding grace and understanding that we're here for a purpose. But I want to be very clear. We are not making ourselves right with God. We are acting in a way that shows that already we have been made right with God. Because faith alone justifies, but the faith that justifies is not alone. As John Calvin said, we weren't saved by good works. Don't get it wrong, but we were saved for good works. That's why you're still here. That's why you're sucking oxygen. Gosh, Nick, could you please get to the next point? You're making me uncomfy. I'm making me uncomfy. Someone shut me up. All right. Then he comes in with this pithy example, right? With this, I'm going to call it cognitive dissonance. Right now, now this is a concept in, in psychology where, and can I have actually up on screen? There's a thing where it's like a, it says uh, La Vita e Bella. Yeah, here we go. Life is beautiful, right? Um, but yet it isn't always. I'm pretty amazing, but not always. My marriage is just the greatest thing since sliced bread, but sometimes it's slightly less than sliced bread in goodness. Cognitive dissonance is it's a it's a secular it's a concept in psychology which sorry to reduce it down to a simple saying but it's where we either think two things that are contradictory at once and therefore are torn or we think one thing but really we do another thing all right this is getting down to tin tacks and and here James uses a real practical example doesn't he 
of one where we have all been there. In fact, yesterday I was there. Suppose a brother or sister who is without clothes and daily food, and, and the literal translation of that is naked with no food. So not like wearing Adidas, but they want to wear Dolce Gabbana, but literally, they've literally got nothing, right? And we say to them, oh, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but we do nothing about their physical needs. What good is that? In brackets, big, fat, hairy, nothing. Point less. An empty platitude? Here's what I want to say, friends. Um, that when it comes to dealing with those who have less, those who are oppressed um, by their own decision-making, decisions around them, life things that have happened to them, I think as the people of God, we lack two things in abundance. We may have some, but we don't have all of at least two things. Compassion and wisdom. We might lack for one for the other. We need more compassion. I need, let me say, you're amazing. I need more compassion. Bishop Desmond Tutu said to the hungry man, the gospel is bread. Don't presume, friends. We should not presume to go and talk to people about the two ways to live and the gospel. And The girl needs rescuing from, from being in a place of being trafficked. The guy needs food. Don't, don't come in and be all hoity-toity and come in with it. No. They need the whole thing. The gospel, it affects everything, body, soul, and spirit. Give them bread. Also give them Jesus. Do both. So we lack compassion or we lack wisdom. Where we create cycles of enablement, even sometimes well-intentioned, we're to give people a hand up, not a hand out. And you probably know at your church, we work really hard, imperfectly I'm sure, but at doing this right Actually, anything less than that is looking down upon people. These are people who God has made in his image with agency and capacity, gifts you don't even know about. Come alongside them, encourage them. Accountability, wisdom, structures that help them. We need both. We need compassion and we need wisdom. But James here is not even really talking about that. He's talking about when you fake it. Oh, be well and, and so on, you know, walking down the corridor. How are you going? You're not really listening to the reply. Most of us are not the time, at the time listening to the reply. I had a friend who used to joke with people. He'd say, oh, terrible, the car's on fire and the dog's dead or whatever. And people would go, oh, good, you know, and they'd walk on past. They weren't really listening, right? <laughs> don't be that person. Don't, don't fake it. Why? Because faith itself, when it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Now... Can I have that picture up on the screen of the uh, $100 bill? Someone literally in between services gave me a bill which none of you can see, but I've got this bill here, and uh, it's got written on there a million dollars. It's literally a million dollar note. I mean, great, you know, there we go. So I'll be driving a Ferrari next week. <laughs> and, um, but here's the thing. Is it really real? When you read the fine print, you see it's actually not, and it's a trick thing. And I was just so bummed out. I'm like, oh, it was a kind gift, and now it's fake, right? Here's, here's my point. Here's my point. How much is a fake $100 bill worth? Well, some people said nothing. I mean, hey, if I can trick someone 
into taking the bill, I can get a hundred bucks worth of, I don't know, shampoo or something, which for me would be too much, but for my wife would be not enough. But you know what I mean, right? <laughs> like, I could, if I could trick somebody, then, you know, okay. But actually, is it really worth hundred bucks? I'd actually say it's worth not just nothing, as someone said, I think it's worth even less than nothing. Because if I'm knowingly doing that, I'm defrauding somebody, I could end up in court or jail, or I don't even know how it works. Um, or at the very least, I'm causing them a, a nightmare. Like, simple point, point made. So it is with inauthentic faith. So it is. It's not just worth nothing, friends. It's actually worth less than nothing. It's zombie faith. It's not alive. It's dead. James moves from this awkwardly, very practical, gritty, real situation to then he, he moves to his, what I'm going to call his theological argument. Then in a second, he, he does a biblical argument. But what is his theological argument? It's called an interlocutor, someone who is either made up or someone who is literally James has had a conversation with, who he's written in here. Someone, verse 18, but someone, who it is, we don't know, will say, well, you have faith, I have deeds. And he says, show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. Even the demons, you notice? Even the demons say, there's one God. But they shudder. At least they shudder. Now, we can skip over this pretty quick, but everybody hearing this, it was almost at this time, remember historically, chronologically, James was the first book likely written in the New Testament. Here it's almost solely a Jewish church. They all knew where this was from. One God. It's from Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. Shema Yisroel. Hear this, Israel. Shut up and listen, guys. This is big stuff. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You know the, the passage. You, you, you know it, right? Everyone hearing it was like, whoa. He just invoked the Shema. He just in, invoked this most central concept to Judaism, and he applied it to whom did he apply it to? Did James just... Because you've been sitting in a home church listening to this. Someone would have been speaking it out, did he? I must have misheard that. I must have been a... You know, bird outside. Looked like he just applied the Shema to demons. Yes, he did. To point out that just to know that there is one God is insufficient. Here's what I want to say I can know about somebody, I can know somebody, I can follow somebody. I can know all about, I don't know. Bill Gates. Maybe I even know Bill Gates. Doesn't mean I'm going to follow him, not necessarily. I can know all about Jesus. I can read the Bible inside out. I can do all that. I can know about him. I can know him. But even if I know him, doesn't mean necessarily that I, that I follow him. Not necessarily. I, I would actually say that this is closer than that one because if you really do know Jesus, if you really do know how kind he is, how gracious he is, how powerful he is, how can you but follow him? But you see, you see what I'm talking about. You see the difference. 
It's a theological reasoning that makes his point. As a body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. It's not a real faith. It's a zombie faith. It's a fake faith. It's a phony faith. It's a pretend faith. It's a faith that's worth not just nothing, actually less than nothing. And then he gives the biblical examples, doesn't he? Here he talks about a father and he talks about a prostitute. And I've got to say, that's not what I would have used. These guys are heroes. These are not the heroes you are looking for, right? (laughs) This is not like Abraham, especially in that story. I mean, Abraham did some good, some bad, but he was a mixed character. Oh my gosh. Anybody else like that? Anyone else? Just me? There we go. You guys are all great. There's a guy at the back, Tom. Good on you. Right. Okay. So me and Tom, like we're a mixed bag, right? Here, this is like, honestly, this is a crazy story, I think, for James to bring up. From Genesis 22, where God says to Abraham, go sacrifice your son on Mount Moriah. What? This is the God who speaks against, again and again, child sacrifice throughout Scripture, how horrendous and awful that is, how much of a a, um, denunciation of, of people being made in the image of God. This precious one, the most precious thing. And, and he tells him, what? And, and Abraham marches Isaac up Mount Moriah. In fact, Isaac's even carrying the wood. And halfway up, you know, he's like, well, Dad, I mean, I know, I see you've got the knife. It was not a rubber knife. I see you've got a knife. I see you've got the coal, probably in some old, you know, some uh, green, rather new leaves. So the coal didn't. I guess they didn't have those, you know, those cheating things we now use when we go camping, right? And he, um, he's walking up the mountain, and Isaac even says, "Dad, where's the lamb? Because what I'm gonna, you know, we're gonna go up to a sacrifice to Yahweh. I'm gonna, where's the lamb?" And he says, "God will provide." They get up there. Think, think about it. If you were a father, or think about your father doing this to you. He ties him up on the altar. He's got a knife. And literally, he's just there, just the moment of him doing it. And the angel of the Lord appears, who is often an Old Testament um, phrase where they would talk about Jesus appearing. But either an angel or Jesus himself says, stop, stop it. Your faithfulness is proved. And here's a, he provided a ram in the bush, they sacrificed the ram. And you're like, Oh my gosh, what a crazy example. And here's the craziest part of all, I think. Maybe I'm just a bit dorky. But, but the, the verse here that James invokes is literally the very same verse that Paul invokes. It's out of Genesis 15, which happened 30 years before they marched up Mount Moriah, where he says it's credited to him as righteousness. See down in verse 21 considered righteous for what he did. You're like, really? But like I said, text, context, whole text. If that's all you had, if you just had a little, like, torn out little page of your Bible, it's like Abraham was considered righteous for what he did, I'd be like, number one, I better be a better person. Number two, I'm toast because I've done some awful stuff that makes me not right before God. But Thank God that we've got the whole Bible, right? 
Not just that verse. In fact, the very next verse, I think, gives us some wonderful nuance to this. Um, it says, you see that his, Abraham's faith and his actions were working together. That his faith was made complete. In some older translations, it, it talks about your faith being perfected. The painting being painted in, to use our, our, our work of art analogy. An opportunity for the commingling of faith and works, not in a salvation sense, because already we are sure that we are assured of God's kindness and his mercy and his grace. His mercy and his grace is given to us in abundance, and yet we are not finished. How do I know that? Because you're still breathing, I'm still breathing. God still has stuff for us to do. We are being brought to this place of completion. And ultimately, Abraham is called God's friend this intimacy, this wonderful intimacy, because he had a life imperfectly, like ours, but postured towards God. I just want to hear what it is. You want me to go there? Okay, I've never heard of it. I'll go. You want me to do what? Isaac? Okay. And he, and, he, and he keeps moving towards God. And here, then, we come to Rahab, the prostitute. Can I have this? should be a, a, uh, like an old sketch type thing of a, um, someone. I, okay. This is an, uh, an 18th century, um, uh, what do you call it? In, no, what are you, not a drawing, but a, I get maybe a drawing. Etching, there we go. Thanks, Wendy, um, of Rahab. And she would have looked nothing like this Germanic-looking person, all right? But I'll, the reason I put it up there is because look at her face. Think about this. The story is in Joshua chapter 2 where the Jews are just about to go into the promised land and, um, and Joshua sends out two spies uh, to Jericho, this fortified city that was impregnable. It looked like they were going to get bested by this place. They couldn't even take the first little step into the promised land. This was just too hard. And these two spies come to the house of Rahab, the prostitute. She takes them in. And then she does this thing where the guards come and she sends them off in the wrong direction. Then she lowers the spies out through the wall because her house was literally built into the side of the fortress, not uncommon in that day, 12 or 15 feet wide. And she you know, helps them get down and helps them escape at great personal risk. Here's my point. As it is in our day, so it was in that day. So it has been throughout history. She is not just a Canaanite. She's not of the people of God. She's also a woman, which wrongly so, but in that day and age, were looked down upon very much. She was also a prostitute. Now, no good father ever has dreams of their daughter growing up to do that. No little girl ever dreams that that's what they want to do. That's why it's so tragic when we talk about it, and, and I'm so glad we're moving in in a preventive way to do this stuff with safe families. But 60% of them, did you hear that stat or did it just wash past you? 60% of kids who are in the foster system, and there's good people in it, I'm sure, but in the foster system, 60% of them, either in sex trafficked or incarcerated or drug addicts. Think about that. 
Could you guys stay seated? Could everybody else stand up? Literally, everybody else. You guys stay seated this, in this section. You stay seated. That's roughly 60%. Think about that. And in a second, in fact, you guys stand up and join us as well. Because um, in a second, we're going to sing here. And I'm um, going to use it as a time for renewal where we're going to allow God's blowtorch to be held on us. And that's a challenge this week, actually. If you would let your mates do that in your, in your connect group and in your, your mates here at church, those who you do life with, who know you and who are known by you. But Rahab becomes this most amazing example, this person who is an outcast, this person who is broken, Yet through her actions, she becomes a very hero of faith. In Hebrews 11, she's talked about as a hero of faith. In James 2, she's talked about as a hero of faith. In Matthew 1, Rahab is talked about in the lineage of Jesus. She's a forebearer, a forebearer of Boaz, the great hero, the kinsman redeemer. I'm sure she wasn't perfect. She come from this place of brokenness. Friends, there is hope for us all. So as we sing this next song together, and as you guys lead us in this, honestly, I want you to do an inventory. I think this passage calls for it. And if you are here and you're, you know, this whole Jesus concept is a new thing for you, it's not for you. Just know that Jesus is so gracious and he's so kind. He has good things in store for you. He has mercy for you. He has grace for you. And it's for you and it's free. And he's holding out this beautiful gift to you. My prayer for us this week is that we would be the people who have a real and gritty faith, who have wisdom from above. Friends, may you go forth from this place in the full assurance of God's grace and God's mercy that you are his and he is yours. And that you have a task. He's not finished with you yet. He's got more wonderful things, more wonderful things, more wonderful things in store. Lord, thank you for these friends here that we can come to your word. Father, I ask that this week you would be tangibly real, actually real for us. Not just a concept, not just an ascent to some sort of thoughts in our mind but really real we love you Lord thank you for today in Jesus name